Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, author of books like Lady Killers and Confident Women, both of which are about female criminals. And I'm going to keep this introduction short because today's case is a really long one, because today's case is a really twisty one, because today's case is full of lunatics, as so many of these cases are. Um, We're going to Hawaii today, guys, and we're going to the 1930s, which normally I would say, isn't that fun? Isn't it fun to be in the 1930s? Just think how nice the fashion is, but not today. That's not what I'm saying today. I want to cite a source I leaned very heavily on for this episode, this fantastic book called, well, it's by David Stannard, and it's called Honor Killing, Race, Rape, and Clarence Darrow's Spectacular Last Case. So now I've said too much already about the episode, Let's get into it. I love a good story about rich women behaving badly. And there are two rich women at the center of this story, Thalia Massey and her mother, Grace. Well, they were rich-ish. They were the sort of rich people who had an impeccable pedigree, and they were always staying in mansions, and they secretly had no money left. And maybe that's why they behaved badly. A certain arrogance. A feeling like they had to maintain appearances at all costs. Or maybe it was something darker. But yes, here today we have the story of two rich women behaving badly. And there are fun parts. There's a moment in the story where someone fills a ship full of flowers. Someone else wears a long, silky, fur-trimmed evening gown, which is just delightful. There's a lot of drinking, some scandalous cheating, a bombshell newspaper interview. How thrilling! And then there are the racist caricatures, the unbelievable miscarriages of justice, and a bullet in the heart of an innocent man. Oh yes, it's all fun and games and champagne until someone gets hurt. And these rich women manage to hurt pretty much an entire country. Let's meet the ladies then, shall we? Grace was a wealthy beauty who was related to Alexander Graham Bell and the president of the National Geographic Society. She spent her summers in a house on 18 acres with 26 rooms. She was a good student and an incorrigible prankster, and she never got in trouble with the law thanks to her connections. She was a wealthy white girl. Who was going to stop her? Once she stole a trolley car with her friends. Another time, she and her girlfriends held hands and roller skated down a busy street, stopping traffic. Cute, right? Grace's wild behavior would get less cute as the years went on. But for now, she was young and beautiful and smart and bold. She golfed and played bridge and rode horses and did it all with style. Grace would have been president if she had been a man, said her father. 
Grace married the bastard son of Theodore Roosevelt's uncle, a spoiled brat named Granville Roland Fortescue. This gem of a man, who went by Rowley, got himself expelled from Yale for firing a gun at his sleeping fraternity brother. Then he went to UPenn, where he didn't make the football team, and so he attacked the football coach so badly he sent the man to the hospital. Classy, right? Rowley spent some time fighting in the Spanish-American War, where he got a tiny bullet wound in his foot and went home with a purple heart that he was very proud of. He married Grace in 1910, and they had three daughters, Thalia, Marion, and Helene. During World War I, Rowley decided that he was going to be a war correspondent. It was the hip job for rich young men. And so he and his wife left their girls with friends and went to Paris to do some serious boots-on-the-ground reporting, a.k.a. getting drunk with their friends. They were always drinking. They were often fighting. Their lives may have looked glamorous on the outside, but they actually had no money. After the war, Rowley didn't work. He refused to. And so they hopped around, staying at their wealthy relatives' mansions and letting family members pay for the girls' expensive schooling. Their finances got so bad that Grace had to start teaching bridge lessons in order for them to survive. She and Rolly would split up, live apart, move back in together, drink, fight, and do it all over again. The girls grew up in this unstable environment. Despite the trauma of their parents' marriage, these girls grew up well-educated and much more privileged than most. Marion went to Oxford. Helene married the heir to the Reynolds aluminum fortune. But Thalia wasn't so lucky. She had thyroid problems, which caused her all sorts of grief. She would gain or lose weight rapidly, and her eyes started bulging out of her head, which is a side effect of some forms of hyperthyroidism. She started walking with her head tilted so she could see better, and she had to wear glasses, which she hated. Honestly, even with the glasses, she could barely see. David Stannard, who wrote the definitive book on the Massey affair, thinks that Thalia may have had Graves' disease, which is a disorder of the immune system that makes your thyroid produce too many hormones. Her bulging eyes could have been a symptom of Graves' disease, as well as other things— Later, she would have a lot of trouble getting and staying pregnant, and her personality was getting more and more volatile. Stannard says both of these things could be side effects of Graves. Anyway, Thalia dropped out of school due to her health problems and spent her teenage days driving old cars down country roads as fast as possible, running naked around her relatives' mansions, and drinking heavily. By the time she was 16, she was estranged from her dad. And then she met a nice young man. His name was Thomas Hedges Massey, and he wanted to join the Navy. Thalia was technically more upper class than he was, even though she had no money, so it was a great match in Thomas's eyes. They fell in love, and the two of them expressed their undying affection to each other by pulling pranks. Once, they dressed up as poor people and sold pencils on a street corner. Another time, they stole someone's baby from the lobby of a movie theater, an actual baby. The parents freaked out, weirdly, and the police got involved, which was just irritating, but Thalia's connections got the case dismissed, of course. What was the big deal? It was just a poor person's baby. Some people are just so uptight. Ugh. 
A month later, the baby thieves were engaged, and they got married on Thanksgiving Day of 1927 in Washington, D.C. They moved around for a bit for Tommy's Navy training. And then, in May of 1930, Tommy got a Navy assignment to Pearl Harbor in the beautiful territory of Hawaii. By the time the Masseys were packing their bags and heading to Hawaii, Hawaii had been excellently branded in the eyes of mainland America. It was paradise, right? A paradise full of palm trees, leis, ukuleles. A lot of very suggestive marketing implied that Hawaii was a place where white people could go to find a young, nubile, brown-skinned lover. There were songs like, When My Honolulu Lady Does the Honolulu Dip. And there were advertisements in magazines that promised white women that if they went to Hawaii, they would find islands full of young men, quote, clad only in the briefest of trunks, their fine bodies gleaming like polished bronze. Actual Hawaiians didn't love this message. One local matron warned that this sort of come to Hawaii and find a lover rhetoric could be really dangerous. These women come from prominent families with lots of money, she wrote. They come down here and seem to go crazy for the time being. As it turned out, that local matron was right. The rhetoric that swirled around Hawaii would go from cliched sensuality to cliched danger in just over a year. Here's another important thing to know about Hawaii back then. It was controlled by a tight-knit group of very powerful white men. It was an oligarchy, and a blatantly white supremacist one. And I don't mean white supremacist in a subtle way. I mean these men were appearing before Congress and talking about the superiority of the white race. They owned huge sugar and pineapple plantations, and they hired native Hawaiians and Asian immigrants to work on them for wages so low that the U.S. Department of the Interior said they were, quote, in the spirit of the slave. And these men would do anything. They'd get involved in politics. They'd get involved in business. They'd get involved in the law. Anything to maintain their white supremacist oligarchy. One of their powerful white friends once called Hawaii a dictatorship, and he meant it as a compliment. Thalia and Tommy settled into an expensive suburb of Honolulu called Manoa Valley. It was a gorgeous place, with a rainbow in the sky almost every day. It was almost exclusively white and full of Navy people, just like them. The Masseys liked this. But unfortunately for the Masseys, they arrived in Hawaii right as the Great Depression was devastating the nation, and this meant that Hawaii's tourism industry was really suffering. No one could afford to travel there, including Thalia's friends. She was only 19 when they moved there, and suddenly she found herself alone in this strange place and totally bored. Tommy expected her to have tea with the other Navy officers' wives, and she found this unbearable. So she started drinking— and causing trouble. It didn't take long for Thalia to make enemies wherever she went. Even the local neighborhood kids thought she was just awful. She would get plastered, and she would tell people exactly what she thought of them. 
Once, when her guests were a half hour late, she locked the door and wouldn't let them in. She would leave parties early in a huff. Here's how one of her friends described her. Mrs. Massey was not at all liked and was very unpopular among the Navy set. She was a very peculiar woman and extremely outspoken. If she saw a woman wearing a dress she did not like, she would not hesitate to tell her it was a terrible-looking thing. She would hurl all kinds of insults at people, regardless of who or what they were and how little she knew them. She would even criticize the hostess when she was invited out to dinner, the manner in which things were served at the table, things inside the house, and the house itself. Can you imagine throwing a party, working hard on the menu, and cleaning your house until it sparkles, and then Thalia comes over? She's drunk, and she just walks right up to you and says that your house is ugly, your dress is hideous, and the cheese plate looks like someone threw up on it. Unbelievable. She and Tommy were fighting all the time now, and they didn't bother to hide it. On several occasions, Thalia bit Tommy's arm in front of their friends. When Tommy was away for work, Thalia would invite other men over and have them spend the night. Tommy knew all about this, because everyone in their circles gossiped wildly, and he couldn't stand it. Once, he found Thalia in a car with another man, and he charged after them, punching the man, slapping Thalia in the face, and dragging her away. Clearly, this was a failing marriage, and Tommy wanted out. But Thalia was petrified at the thought of divorce, even though she was deeply unhappy herself. So she tried to improve by enrolling in a freshman English class at the University of Hawaii, which she failed. Then she tried an intro to Spanish class and failed it too. She tried acting, but she was terrible at it. She tried getting a job and got hired by Atcherly Advertising Services as a sales girl. She made one sale in two weeks and then quit. By the spring of 1931, Thalia was pregnant, and it was horrible. She already had one failed pregnancy, and this pregnancy was no better. She had preeclampsia and ended up losing the baby. The symptoms of the preeclampsia didn't leave her afterward. Her body was swollen, she was deeply depressed. Things had gotten so dark for her that she went to a psychologist and told him all about how cold Tommy was to her, how she didn't love him. The young psychologist was overwhelmed by her problems, and he told her that she needed psychiatry. She canceled her next appointment with him and went on with her life. By the fall of 1931, Tommy had started threatening divorce again. She begged him to stay with her, and so as a compromise, he put her on a three-month probation, even writing up a contract that specified how she had to behave. She had to change her ways, he said. Otherwise, the marriage was over. Thalia agreed. She couldn't make a fool of herself at parties if she never went to parties, and so she shut her doors, didn't see anyone, and stayed quiet. Until September 12th, that is, 1931, when she agreed to go out for the night. She didn't want to, but the contract said she had to. And so she put on a long green dress. She put on a long green dress with a matching jacket trimmed with fur, a jade necklace, alligator skin pumps, a faux tortoise shell barrette in her hair, and no glasses. She didn't like how they made her look, and so she grabbed her green brocade handbag and went to the party. 
The night was dark. She could hardly see a thing. Thalia's time at the party was just as disastrous as you might expect from someone with a habit of drinking too much and insulting everyone around her. Two other couples came over to the Massey house, and they pre-gamed by drinking moonshine, and then they got in a minor car accident as they drove to the party. The party was a raucous, huge gathering at Alawai Inn, and once they arrived, Tommy disappeared into the crowd. Thalia skulked around angrily, looking for him. It didn't take her long to get into trouble. She insulted an officer's wife, and she stole someone's seat, and she got into a huge argument with the person whose seat she stole, and she ended up slapping that man in the face. So everyone breathed a sigh of relief when Thalia declared that she'd had enough and left. It was just before midnight when she left the party. She walked towards the beach on a well-lit road. Multiple people saw her. She had that distinctive walk with her head tilted down due to her bad eyesight, and she had on that long green dress. She was easy to remember. And most of these witnesses saw something else. Thalia was being followed. There was a white man walking after her, a white man in a dark suit. The eyewitnesses watched Thalia and the white man walk off into the night. And then something happened to Thalia. Ninety years later, we can only guess at what it was. But what she said happened would change many people's lives. In fact, it would literally change the course of Hawaiian history. By then it was almost 1 a.m., and a car full of partygoers was driving down the road when suddenly an apparition appeared before them. It was a woman in a long green evening gown. Her mouth was swollen. Her cheek was scuffed. It looked like someone had punched her in the face. She said, are you white people? They said, yes. She said, thank God, and climbed into their car. In the car, she told the first version of her story. Five or six native Hawaiian men had just dragged her into their car, she said, where they beat her up. The shocked partygoers took her straight home. Thalia arrived home before Tommy, who was still out partying. By the time he got there, his wife was crying and dressed in her nightgown. She told him the story, except this time she added a terrible detail. The men had raped her, she said. Tommy called the police, and by the time they arrived, Thalia's injuries had mysteriously gotten worse. Her hair was messed up, and her lip was bleeding now. She told the police the same story she told Tommy. The police asked her again and again if she had seen anything that might help identify the men. But she said no, she hadn't been able to see a thing. The night was dark, and she wasn't wearing her glasses. The only thing she could say was that they had been driving an old car, maybe a black one. She also insisted that they had been native Hawaiian and not Asian. The police asked her this because they knew white people sometimes confused the two. But Thalia repeatedly insisted that she hadn't seen their faces and she certainly hadn't seen their license plate number. Now, the police already had a group of men in mind. Earlier that night, five young guys had been in a minor car accident and had gotten in a fight with a couple driving that other car. That couple had ended up calling the police on them. Never mind that those guys were driving a new light-colored car and that half of them were Asian— a group of young men riding around causing trouble 
had to be the same guys who'd attacked Thalia. So the police set about making sure that Thalia identified them. One policeman took her into a room and interviewed her with no one else present. And during that interview, Thalia magically remembered the license plate number of the car involved in her attack. I think it was 58805, she said. I would not swear to that being correct. I just caught a fleeting glimpse of it as they drove away. And what do you know? She was only one digit away from the license plate number of that new light-colored car. Before long, police had arrested the five young men. Horace Ida, Benny Acajuelo, Joseph Kahahave, Henry Chang, and David Takai. These five young men were poor boys with lightly troubled pasts, some time in juvenile court, some fighting on the street, some trouble in school. Two of them, Ben and Henry, had a darker stain on their record. They had done time at age 18 for the gang rape of a teenage girl. The press went wild with this when they picked up on that bit of information. But it wasn't as straightforward as it sounded. The girl later admitted that the whole thing had been consensual, but that people had started accusing her of being a slut, and so she'd accused the boys of rape. The third member of this group, Joe, was a shy, quiet boxer who hated white people because a white person had murdered one of his close family friends and hadn't been punished for it. These five boys were confused as they were taken into the station. Why were the officers talking to them ominously about a white woman? What white woman? They'd been out all night partying in a totally different part of town, and they had about a bazillion eyewitnesses who'd seen them. White woman? They had no idea what the police were going on about. Surely, this was all a mistake. At the hospital, Thalia was given a rape exam. A nurse examined her and found no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. A doctor examined her and came to the same conclusion, but they didn't say anything publicly. She was weeping. Her jaw was all messed up. Clearly, something had happened to this woman. The police asked Thalia to look at four of the five boys that they'd arrested, and she identified two of them, said that she wasn't sure about one of them, and pointed to the fourth, David Takai, and said that he definitely wasn't involved. This was awkward for the police, since the guys had been together all night, but they forged ahead with their theory regardless. Thalia was probably mistaken about the whole David thing, because these five men had definitely done it. As they pressed on with the case, rumors were spreading like wildfire across Honolulu. Navy officers whispered to each other that Thalia had had one of her nipples bit almost all the way off and her nose and pelvis broken. The case immediately became a lightning rod for classism and racism. Five poor men of color had attacked a high society white woman. People started using the L word, lynch. The Admiral of the Navy charged over to the Governor of Hawaii and demanded that he prosecute these guys immediately. Later, the Governor would regret how quickly everyone acted. From this beginning were to come blasted careers, ruined lives, tragedy, and death, 
he would say. From the beginning, too, the police and the prosecution were trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. They interviewed all five of these young men separately, and their stories were absolutely consistent. They had party-hopped all night, so they had been seen at many different locations by many different people. They would have had absolutely no time to get across town after midnight and assault Thalia. It just wasn't physically possible. But never mind that, because this wasn't the first time police had fit a square peg into a round hole. They had plenty of tricks up their sleeve, like they made sure their stenographer only wrote down the parts of the interview that made the boys look guilty. Thalia was a great help, too. After she saw the boys in person, she was able to magically remember lots of details about what they looked like. Sure, there was no physical evidence linking the men to Thalia. No fingerprints of Thalia's in the boys' car. No blood or semen stains on any of their clothes. No markings on Thalia's clothes or shoes. But that didn't stop headlines like this one. Gang assaults young wife. That story described a white woman of refinement and culture being assaulted by fiends. Anyone who read that newspaper would have come away with the L word on the brain. Thankfully for the boys, Hawaii's very own princess, Princess Kawananakoa, quickly learned about the case, and she got the boys two fantastic lawyers, and these lawyers found the boys so consistent in their stories that they took on the case, convinced the boys were innocent. This move made Hawaii's powerful white men nervous. They really kind of needed these boys to be convicted, not because they thought they were guilty. Many of these men actually thought they were innocent, but because of the aesthetics. Tourism was already down in Hawaii, and if word got around that Hawaii wasn't a place where bronzed boys sensuously rubbed massage oil over rich white women, but where rich white women got assaulted by Hawaiian men who then walked free, well, nobody would come to the islands then. And so these powerful men held an emergency meeting. They decided they were going to raise money to help the prosecutor. They were going to silence the press from saying anything unfavorable to them. And they were going to win this thing. A month before the trial started, a wealthy woman arrived in Hawaii. She was well-dressed and ready for everybody to pay attention to her. This woman was none other than Grace Fortescue, Thalia's mother. She'd sent a press release to Honolulu's finest newspapers ahead of time so that everybody would be ready to greet her. She brought along her daughter, Helene, and she was ready to lunch at country clubs, learn how to dance the hula, and make sure her daughter's rapists never saw the light of day again. Now, Grace was, to put it mildly, outrageously racist. She used horrible slurs to describe Hawaiian people, and she would call the police if she saw anyone in her neighborhood who wasn't white. Early on in her visit, Thalia whispered to her that she hadn't had her period since the night of the attack, and so Grace took her to the hospital, where the doctors determined that Thalia wasn't pregnant. There, at the hospital, Thalia was being treated by Hawaiian nurses, and Grace freaked out, screaming that only white nurses were allowed to treat her precious daughter. Now that Grace was here, 
the trial could start, of course. It started on November 16th in front of an extremely diverse jury, which was frustrating for people like Grace who wanted the jury to be all white. Unfortunately for Grace, Hawaii had laws about those sorts of things, and you couldn't have a single race jury. It just wasn't allowed. And so the trial proceeded. To be frank, it was an appalling mess. Policemen were clearly lying on the witness stand. The scent of planted evidence hung heavily in the air. The prosecutor overused the term lust-sodden beasts, which was his favorite way to refer to the defendants. And Thalia's testimony had changed a lot since the first statements she gave the police. Now she was saying that it hadn't been very dark at all that night, and so she could see everybody quite clearly. She said that she had heard them use each other's names and nicknames, and she even described their outfits in suspicious detail. She also changed her timing. She said that she left the party earlier than she had said before, which gave the boys more time to drive across town and assault her. And finally, Thalia dropped a bombshell on the witness stand. She said that the rape had resulted in a pregnancy and that she'd had to get an abortion. This was a blatant lie, but a lot of people believed it. Now, the prosecution's case was damaged by all the people who testified that they'd seen Thalia walking down the street in her green evening gown that night, followed by a white man. These witnesses implied that whatever happened to Thalia, it was something very different than the narrative she was spinning now. In order to try and discredit all those witnesses, the prosecutor basically pulled a bunny out of a hat. At the very last minute, after the defense had begun its closing statements, the prosecutor produced a new witness who said that he was the man in the dark suit and that the woman in the green dress was his wife. In fact, as the prosecutor concluded, there may have been as many as four women in long green evening dresses walking along the road that night. The defense closed by reiterating that the five men on trial simply had no time to assault Thalia. Rape was one of the worst crimes imaginable, one of the boy's lawyers thundered. But as he said, there is a worse crime, one more heinous, and that is sending innocent men to the penitentiary. He told the jurors that they would never have another night's peaceful sleep if they found these five men guilty. He roared, if you convict them, you have got to have no conscience. You have got to have no soul. You have got to be cowardly. The jurors deliberated for more than 97 hours, a record for Hawaii. They simply couldn't agree. Finally, they declared that they were deadlocked. It was a hung jury, and the trial was declared a mistrial. Everyone would have to do the whole thing all over again. On the mainland, white Americans were shocked. They had thought for sure that these lust-sodden beasts would have been convicted. In Honolulu, Grace fumed. These pathetic prosecutors and pitiful policemen were worthless. The law had failed her daughter. Now, Grace was going to have to become the law. As 
As the prosecutor started gearing up for a second trial, Grace and Tommy and the powerful white businessmen who ran Hawaii were getting nervous. Unless someone could dig up new evidence, the boys were probably going to go free at this second trial. They needed something fresh, something compelling, something like a confession. In the meantime, all the racial fear and hatred that had been sparked by the trial was being fanned into an even bigger flame. One of Grace's friends, a journalist, started publishing editorials about how Hawaii was drowning under a crime wave, which was completely untrue. As a matter of fact, there had never been a case in the entire history of Hawaii of a native Hawaiian man raping a white woman. Though there had been plenty of cases of white men raping native Hawaiian women, and unsurprisingly, these men usually got away with it. In these editorials, written by Grace's friend, the journalist shrieked that women ran the risk of being assaulted and foully raped by gangs of lust-mad youths, foul, slimy creatures crawling through the streets and attacking the innocent and defenseless. This sort of inflammatory rhetoric really got the Navy men going, and they started flirting with the idea of a uh, mass murder. A group of them marched into downtown Honolulu with containers of aviation fuel, apparently threatening to burn the place down. Another sailor drove a car full of mounted machine guns into town. And another group of Navy men even kidnapped one of the defendants, Horace Ida, and beat him with their belts, demanding a confession. He pretended to faint, and they finally left him alone. Among this hysteria, many white women in Hawaii started arming themselves, and Grace was no exception. She was proud of her gun, and she felt like a real badass carrying it around. The guy who helped her get it was a raging alcoholic named Deacon Jones, who was actually hired to work as Thalia's bodyguard, since the publicity from the trial had been so overwhelming. Deacon didn't care for Thalia. He once declared that she had the personality of the bottom of your big toe. But he loved Grace. A wonderful woman, he called her. A tough old gal. The two of them played bridge together, and Deacon told Grace a provocative secret. He had been one of the men who'd kidnapped Horace Ida a week earlier. Huh, Grace said. Kidnapping, you say? What a thought. She and Tommy, her son-in-law, started scheming. They liked this kidnapping idea. What better way to get a confession out of those lust-sodden beasts? They decided to kidnap Joseph Kahahavai, the gentle boxer. Tommy heard through the grapevine that Joe was the most likely to confess. And it's also worth noting that Joe was the biggest and the most dark-skinned of the boys. Newspapers in those days were full of incredibly racist caricatures that showed huge, dark-skinned men attacking skinny white women in skimpy clothes. And we know that Grace believed in these caricatures wholeheartedly. Was that why she chose to target Joe? Maybe. There were four people involved in this plot by now. Grace, Tommy, Deacon Jones, who was wasted all the time, and a friend of Deacon's named Edward Lord. Grace decided that in order to get Joe into their car, they needed a fake piece of paperwork to make them look more legit. So she forged a police summons, writing, Territorial Police, Major Ross Commanding, Summons to Appear, Kahahavai Joe. 
The resulting piece of paper looked like an art project by an ambitious first grader. Grace's handwriting was uneven and sloppy. She misspelled the word territorial. She pasted on a random gold seal from one of Tommy's diplomas. And best of all, she cut out a nonsensical bit of text from a newspaper and just glued it onto the paper. Here's what that text said. Life is a mysterious and exciting affair, and if anything can be a thrill, you know how to look for it and what to do with opportunity when it comes. You know, the same wording that cops always put on their official paperwork. On January 8th, 1932, Joe Kahahavai left home for the last time. He had to report to the courtroom every morning at 8 a.m. as he waited for the next trial. He had just turned 22. His father had been encouraging him to try and turn his life around, and Joe was trying, he really was. So he dressed nicely for his visit to the courthouse. He wore clothes that his mom had mended and washed and pressed the night before. His cousin went with him. Grace watched the two young men walk into the courthouse. She had a photo of Joe in her purse so she could be sure it was him. After a while, the boys emerged, and Grace signaled wildly to Deacon Jones, That's him! In a flash, Deacon was at Joe's side, waving the fake summons and, more subtly, holding a gun. He pushed Joe into the car, and the car peeled off before Joe's cousin could do anything. But there was one major red flag. The summons was allegedly from Major Ross— But Joe's cousin saw that the car was driving in the opposite direction from Major Ross's office. Something wasn't right. He ran back inside the courthouse to report a kidnapping. The car, with Joe in it, screeched into Grace's driveway and pulled into the garage, and everyone went inside. Meanwhile, thanks to Joe's cousin, the police were already looking for Grace and her men, One policeman was just hanging out listening to the police scanner when he heard an announcement, look for a Buick sedan with a middle-aged white woman inside it. That policeman then looked up to see a Buick sedan with a middle-aged white woman inside it. This sedan had shades, and one of the shades was pulled all the way down, even though it was morning. Suspicious. He and his partner took off after the Buick, which was heading for a blowhole the sort of place where you could throw something into the water and it would get sucked back into the ocean forever. They could see Grace watching them in her rearview mirror, which made them even more suspicious. They passed her car, and the cop told his partner to check the back seat. In the back seat, they saw, quote, something white wrapped in a bundle. They pulled the Buick over, approached with guns drawn, and took a closer look at the back seat. There was something long and heavy lying there, wrapped in a soaking wet bedsheet, stained with blood. There was a human leg sticking out of the sheet. Everyone in the car was placed under arrest. Someone took a photo of Grace during the chaos, and she grinned at the camera, looking pleased with herself. Despite her grin, Grace was shocked when she was actually charged with first-degree murder. Um, hello, she'd just killed a rapist. Why was everyone so stressed? Okay, so the cops had searched her house and found blood everywhere and a gun hidden in a basket of eggs. 
So what? We had not broken the law, she said later. We were trying to aid the law. At least the Navy was on her side. Right after she was charged with first-degree murder, an admiral from the Navy burst into the room and hugged her. My heart went out to this brave mother, he said later. I read in her strong face that she was undefeated and would fight for justice to the end. Since Grace was a rich white woman, whose daughter's lies had almost sent five innocent men to prison for the rest of their lives, but who was counting, Grace didn't have to stay in the disgusting old jail, which was for poor people. She got to stay on a ship. The lovely USS Alton, where she was put in the penthouse suite, which had a great view of Hawaii through the porthole. Newspapers quickly picked up on the fact that Joe Kahavai had been found dead, and they started to brand the incident an honor killing. In other words, these newspapers implied, Grace and her men had done a really good thing. People who agreed with this started sending Grace and her co-conspirators flowers, so many flowers that the massive ship where they were staying literally couldn't hold them all. As Grace lounged around in her fields of roses, the four surviving accused men, Henry, David, Horace, and Ben, were thrown back into jail for their own protection so that no one would kidnap and kill them, and they were told that if they wanted food, their families would have to bring it. Meanwhile, Grace was eating from Hawaii's finest restaurants. Joe, the handsome, young, dead boxer, was laid out in state in a dark suit and a lay of fragile yellow flowers. Thousands of people came by to mourn him. His four co-defendants made their way up to his coffin, sobbing as they said goodbye to the friend of their youth. Who among them could have known that the night of September 12th, the night when they were just driving around looking for a party with good beer, would have led to this? Everyone was stressing as Grace's trial loomed, though Grace herself played it cool. She was being tried along with Tommy and Edward Lord. Deacon Jones was tried separately since he had been at her house, not in the car, when she and Tommy and Edward were arrested. She was surprised when a grand jury indicted her. She had definitely expected to just walk free. But when she was indicted, she dressed up and walked confidently into the courtroom to hear the charges against her. Those silly silly charges. Everything would get straightened out in the trial. She was sure of it. After all, she had the best defense lawyer in the world on her side. Yes, her lawyer was none other than the famous Clarence Darrow, the defense lawyer for Leopold and Loeb and the Scopes Monkey Trial. Everyone who knew Clarence was really weirded out that he had decided to represent Grace because he'd made a name for himself representing the poor and the downtrodden. He was vocal about the rights of black Americans, and he insisted that he spoke for the poor, for the weak, for the weary, for that long line of men who in darkness and despair have borne the labors of the human race. So why in the world was he defending this spoiled heiress who'd been found with a body in her car? Well, Clarence Darrow was retired and totally broke. He'd lost all his money when the stock market crashed. So he charged Grace an exorbitant fee, $40,000, and she got her rich friends to pay for it. Clarence knew that this was going to be a challenging case. 
After all, his client was acting like a lunatic. She gave an infuriating interview to the New York Times where she smiled innocently and said things like, I have slept better since Friday the 8th, the day of the murder, than for a long time. My mind is at peace. I am satisfied. And I am not worrying. Yes, it was going to be a challenge for Clarence to defend this poorly behaved rich woman, but he was up for it. The trial started on April 11th. The jury was mostly white, seven white people, three Chinese Hawaiians, and two Native Hawaiians. The courtroom was mostly white. Wealthy white women settled down in seats that had been saved for them by their maids. As one journalist wrote, High society dames arrive in silks and satins unruffled by exposure to the night elements and slip into the places that have been secured for them by accommodating servants who have endured the hardships in order that my lady might enjoy her beauty sleep and still be assured of an opportunity to sate her morbid curiosity as she listens with twitching lips to the sordid story of a tragedy. The story was indeed sordid and tragic. The prosecutor made a strong case that this had been a premeditated, cold-blooded murder. He brought Joe's mother up to the stand to identify Joe's bloody clothing, and emotion rippled through the courtroom. The defendants are guilty, the prosecutor thundered. It is a plain and obvious fact. They not only admit it, they proclaim it. Clarence Darrow didn't dispute this. Obviously, the defendants were guilty. Grace had admitted to the murder in the New York Times, for God's sake. No, he had a different plan. He brought Tommy to the stand, a very well-rehearsed Tommy. And Tommy told a dramatic story about how much his wife had been suffering. Tommy said that Thalia would wake in the middle of the night, screaming, Don't let him get me! Don't let him get me! And would then say, Kahahave! And so, of course Tommy had to kidnap and murder Joe Kahave. Wouldn't any husband do the exact same thing? According to Tommy, they kidnapped Joe and threatened to torture him unless he confessed. And at that, Joe blurted out, yes, we done it. At that, Tommy blacked out and didn't remember anything until he found himself getting arrested. Yes, Clarence Darrow was going for the insanity defense. He argued that Tommy had blacked out and killed Joe, just like any red-blooded American husband would, and Grace had masterminded the whole thing, just like any red-blooded American mother would. In fact, Clarence thundered, Grace was pretty much the ideal mother. When she participated in the kidnapping and murder, she, quote, acted as every mother acts. Everything else is forgotten in the emotion that carries her back to the time when her child was a little baby in her arms, which she bore and loved. It was dramatic stuff, but the prosecutor could be dramatic too. Wearing a blood-red bow tie, he stood up for closing statements and called Tommy Massey a conceited, vain, egotistical individual who had been lying about everything and trying to, quote, hide behind the skirts of his mother-in-law. Three able men and a cold, calculating woman let that man bleed to death in front of them, inch by inch, he roared. They let him die. They dragged him into the bathroom like a dog and let him die. Most powerfully, the prosecutor declared that Grace wasn't the only mother in the courtroom. There was another mother there, he said, and he looked directly at Joe's mom. 
Grace was sure they'd get off. Obviously, she was the most sympathetic and beautiful and classy and well-bred mother of all time. So she was shocked when the jury came back and found them guilty. Guilty of manslaughter with a recommendation of leniency. Thalia wailed, but Grace didn't shed a tear when she heard the verdict. I expected it, she told reporters, which was a total lie. But Grace knew that it was important to never let them see you sweat. Immediately, the governor of Hawaii started getting a lot of pressure to make this nasty little verdict go away. The defendants were going to get sentenced to 10 years of hard labor if he didn't do anything. Obviously, a sentence like that simply wouldn't do for someone like Grace. Even Congress got involved, sending the governor a petition which he took as nothing more than a thinly veiled threat. The KKK got involved, too, sending the prosecutor a letter saying that they were going to kill him. And rumor has it that President Hoover himself called the governor of Hawaii and told him to make the problem go away. Grace and Tommy and the whole crew showed up to their sentencing, and they were given those 10 years of hard labor. But everyone watching was confused, because Grace and Tommy and everyone else were smiling. Why weren't these murderers weeping and gnashing their teeth? They were smiling because someone had told them what was about to happen. Right after their sentencing, the governor held a press conference and declared that he was going to commute their sentences from 10 years of hard labor to one hour, which would be served in his office, which was in a palace. By the time the press conference was over, they had already, quote-unquote, served 40 minutes of their sentence, so they had a mere 20 minutes left, which they filled by taking photos and giving interviews and congratulating each other. It was a scene right out of any dictatorship, the blatant untouchability of the privileged few. Never mind that a young man was rotting underground. Who cared about people like that? when there were people like Grace around. Admittedly, everyone in Hawaii who wasn't a corrupt oligarch or a white supremacist naval officer found the situation appalling. Even the governor hated it. He later admitted that he felt guilty about the whole thing and had wanted to, quote, scrub his hands afterward. But his guilt changed nothing. Grace and Tommy and Thalia were already very busy skipping town. Thalia was supposed to stay in Hawaii and testify again at the retrial of the four remaining boys that she had accused of rape, but she didn't want to do that. After all, it seemed pretty likely that a retrial wouldn't go her way, especially now that her mom had killed one of the defendants. And so she and her husband and her mother literally snuck onto a ship and got the hell out of there. Of course, in Hawaii, the case against Horace, David, Henry, and Ben was still very much alive. Authorities decided to bring in the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, the best detectives in the world, to figure out what exactly had happened on that night of September 12th. 
The Pinkerton detectives retraced steps and dug up new leads and interviewed people across the country. Their almost 300-page report concluded that, quote, it is impossible to escape the conviction that the kidnapping and assault was not caused by those accused. The report also said, damningly, we have found nothing in the record of this case, nor have we through our own efforts been able to find what in our estimation would be sufficient corroboration of the statements of Mrs. Massey to establish the occurrence of rape upon her. These two sentences were bombshells. They destroyed Thalia's entire case. But most people never heard those sentences. The oligarchs who ran Hawaii made sure that the unpleasant report was suppressed. After all, (laughs) you couldn't have people realizing that the whole messy trial and the murder of Joseph Kahahavai had been for nothing, right? It wouldn't be a good look. Still, the charges against the four living men were dropped, as, on the mainland, Thalia lied to the press, saying that she had been forced to leave the island, and that there were new eyewitnesses who could prove that she wasn't lying, and so on and so forth. But the world was moving on from Thalia and from her mother and from their antics. For a while, Thalia and Grace and Tommy had been very famous. Photographers followed them around the ship, and journalists wrote about their every move. But history moved on, fast. There was the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby to write about, the flight and disappearance of Amelia Earhart. And Thalia and Tommy returned to their old ways of drunkenness and dissatisfaction. Eventually, it was time for the thing Thalia had dreaded for so long— Divorce. Six weeks after she divorced from Tommy, she slashed her wrists and tried to jump off the deck of a cruise ship. She recovered, but it wasn't pretty. She drank heavily, and she kept getting dragged into court for things like public drunkenness or drunk driving. Once, she guzzled wine for five hours and then beat her pregnant landlady so badly that the woman sued her. It had been good to be Thalia Massey in the courtroom, maybe, but it was no longer good to be Thalia Massey. On July 2nd, 1963, she swallowed a handful of barbiturates and ended her life. Tommy remarried twice. Eventually, he started having what looked like an extended mental breakdown. He was raving in public, hearing music in his head, and saying that he could will himself to die— He was diagnosed as manic-depressive psychosis, manic type, and discharged from the Navy. He lived a long life on his disability pension, and he died at 81 on the 55th anniversary of Joe's murder. Had Tommy really been the one to put a bullet in Joe's body, though? No. That was just a story that Clarence Darrow had cooked up for the courtroom, figuring that the jury might find Tommy a sympathetic figure. You know, the vengeful husband. But the person who really killed Joe was Deacon Jones, the alcoholic. Deacon gave an interview about it in the early 1960s. He said that what had happened was Tommy had been interviewing Joe, and Joe just didn't seem scared enough for Deacon's taste. And when Joe had the audacity to lean forward in his seat, Deacon just shot him. He called him the black bastard. I had no use for him, he said. 
Joe's four friends were free, but their lives were changed forever. As David Stannard wrote, The stigma never left them. It haunted their marriages. Their children returned home from school to ask if the stories being told about their fathers on the playgrounds were true. Some of Joe's family members changed their last names to distance themselves from the whole terrible mess. Today, after both trials and the Pinkerton National Detective Agency report and a lot of great research by historians, it is crystal clear that none of those boys had anything to do with Thalia Massey. They had never seen her before they were dragged into the police station. Their trial was a travesty, and everybody knew it, even the people who were screaming for their conviction. Yes, they were absolutely innocent, but that leaves us with one nagging question. What happened to Thalia on the night of September 12th? Clearly, something happened. At the bare minimum, someone hit her in the face. Who was the white man in the dark suit who followed her? There had been one white man at the party wearing a dark suit. He stood out in the crowd of Navy men in their white uniforms. Did Thalia offend him? Was he one of Thalia's lovers? Did they get in a fight? Maybe he wasn't anyone from the party. Maybe Thalia had arranged to meet another lover later. Or maybe he was just a random psychopath, the kind of stalker who would follow a woman down a dark street and bash her in the head. And then... Why did Thalia's injuries get worse before the police arrived? Her mouth was bleeding by then, but it hadn't been bleeding when the car full of partygoers picked her up. Did Tommy figure out one of her secrets and hit her across the face? Did she feel like she had to tell the story of five Hawaiian men assaulting her in order to justify her behavior to Tommy? Was she covering for someone else? Was she just feeling melodramatic and figured that you could say whatever you wanted about Hawaiian men and nothing would come of it? And did she regret, for the rest of her life, her very public lie? No matter what actually happened to Thalia that night, she couldn't have guessed what she had unleashed by telling the story she told. The violence, the anger, the racism that would bubble over into a lynching, masterminded by her own mother and husband. Those two trials and the death of Joe Kahahavai changed Hawaii forever. For decades, Joe's relatives didn't talk about what had happened. It was too painful. But believe it or not, Thalia also unleashed something positive on Hawaii. Six months after she fled the island, it was election day. Over 90% of voters turned up at the polls. During the trial, Republican politicians had been the ones who made sure that Grace and her co-conspirators would walk free, and these voters were sick of that. So they turned to the Democrats. They voted a wave of Democrats into office, and this eventually led to a progressive transformation. Today, Hawaii has no death penalty, strict gun control, one of the highest minimum wages in the country. It was the first state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, and so on and so forth. Hawaii still has its problems, plenty of them. But after Thalia and Grace and Tommy left, the islanders picked up the pieces and made a better life for themselves. You know who else made a better life for herself? Grace. As her daughter spiraled, 
Grace thrived. She got a big inheritance from her dad, and so she was finally officially rich. She bought herself a home in the Bahamas and another place in Palm Beach. You might think that she'd try to forget about Hawaii forever, given that she was tried for murder there and all. But no, she was still obsessed with Hawaii. She designed her Palm Beach mansion to look like a Hawaiian villa, and she called it Isle Home. She started water skiing at 75, parasailing at 87, and she lived until 95, happy as a clam. You might be thinking, this is horrifically unfair. That woman completely got away with it. And in a way, she did. She did get away with it. But history always has the final say. And in the eyes of history, Grace is not a glamorous heiress with her hair tousled by the sea breeze and her elegant cheekbones just slightly tanned from the beach and her reputation as the world's best mother. She is a racist and a killer. And that is her legacy. Not very classy at all. That's all, folks, and thank you so much for listening to that tale. I have a pop quiz for you all. Who is most irritating? Grace? Grace Fortescue? Or Pam Hupp from two episodes ago? Let me know. <laughs> Email me, criminalbroads at gmail.com, or send me a message on Instagram, instagram.com slash criminalbroads, where you can catch photos from today's case, photos of all the main players, the victims, etc. Clarence Darrow's iconic face, although we're not happy. We're not we're we're proud of him for some of the work he did. We're very proud of him for much of the work he did, but we're not proud of him for taking on this case. Like, I'm no defense lawyer. You all know that. But I just want to take him by the shoulders and be like, Clarence, I know you need the money and I feel you. And $40,000 is a lot of money, especially in 1932. But your client just gave an interview in the New York Times saying that she's proud of murdering someone. You really want to take on a case like that? You want that woman to be your client? You want this to be the last case you ever try in the courtroom? Oh, Clarence, Clarence, Clarence. That's what I tell him. Anyway, where was I? Instagram if you want to see his face. I think that's all I have for you today, guys. I'll see you next week for a case that is... We're going to do a tone shift. Well, mm, you're still going to be infuriated <laughs> at many things in it. So I can't promise you you won't be infuriated. I can't promise you sad things won't happen. But it's going to be a tonal shift from this. We're, we're going to get away from these stories of rich people behaving horrifically and go to... Um, yeah, people being abused by the system. <laughs> Fun, right? Okay, I'll see you back here next week, and I can't wait. Have a good one until then. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you.